The focus of the week is, has been clearly stated, from the prophet Isaiah at chapter 55. And as soon as I saw that weeks ago, I was simply delighted because I considered it an incredible privilege to speak on this passage. Now, last night, we began with Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, I rather doubt that we are as serious about this matter as God himself is. But he's given us some very clear warning passages of Scripture about a failure at this point. I was thinking today about that classic example of not realizing that with God there is a time for repentance and a time when it is simply too late for repentance. Some of you know that warning passage in Hebrews chapter 12, and especially verses 15 to 17, where we are told, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now, it would be wise to ask ourselves immediately this evening, Is there any danger that I am coming short of the grace of God? And then it adds that no root of bitterness spring up. And indeed, all across America, church after church, where I've been, conference after conference, there are roots of bitterness in place. And yet the Lord warned, see to it that uh, no root of bitterness spring up to cause trouble. And uh, by it, for many to be defiled. And then it adds that no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. I would expect there are literally millions like Esau who have sold their birthright for a single meal. But our concern tonight is not for those who aren't here, but for each of us. Is there a danger that you yourself personally are at heart like Esau, who sold his very birthright for a single meal? For you know that afterward, even when he sought 
for a way of repentance, could not find it. It would be absurd to suppose that one has forever to get right with God. And it is certainly absurd, not only for individuals, but for churches and for societies to presumptuously suppose that there's no hurry. I wonder how many of you are alert to the fact that when God sent Jeremiah to minister as a prophet, he said to Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. If you do, I will not hear you. Now I'd like to ask you, do you know any reputable Christian in America who has been told by God, don't pray for these people? I said reputable person. We've got a lot of self-appointed prophets who are telling us all kinds of things. But honestly, I don't know a single reputable servant of Christ who has been told, don't pray for these people. Everybody I talk to who is in love with Christ and seeking to follow him tells me that God has encouraged them to pray, has kept them at it even when they grow weary. But in the light of that, can we suppose that we have forever in which to respond? And you do remember, don't you, that when God told Jeremiah not to pray for the people, he also made it plain to and through Jeremiah that for them it was too late to hope for deliverance because God had decided to send them into captivity. And did you ever think of the consequence of the captivity that God determined to bring those people into? The number of years is actually stated. Seventy years in captivity. And did you ever think about the consequence of a 70-year captivity? How many of those that were carried into captivity would be likely to still be alive 70 years later? It was God's way of wiping out that entire generation. And thus the prophet Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Are we not truly a blessed people in that we can tonight and each night this week And each day before us, 
seek the Lord and know that now he is, he is available, that he can be found. But if we refuse at this time to, to seek the Lord, can we suppose that a year from this time it will be as good an opportunity as it is right now? I'm not saying it won't be, but I am saying it would be very reckless to suppose that it would be. For the teaching is to seek him now, while he may be found, and to call upon him while he is near. But that sixth verse of Isaiah 55, we have looked at, and this evening we're going to move into the first couple of lines of the seventh verse. I have the privilege of speaking to you insofar as we now know tonight and tomorrow night and Wednesday night and then as I indicated yesterday uh, I'm supposed to be in eastern North Carolina for Friday and Saturday and Sunday in a totally different setting. So that gives me three nights to devote to verse 7. Look, if you will, please, at Isaiah 55 and verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That's our theme for tonight. Lord willing, tomorrow night we'll look at let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And then Wednesday night, Lord helping us and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So let's take those first two lines tonight and treat them as carefully and yet as simply as we possibly can. This is the text. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Now, our immediate first danger is supposing these words are addressed to somebody else. But what a tragic mistake that would be. Ought not each of us to focus upon this word from the Lord and to gain everything possible for our own hearts and lives. It's rather foolish to expect that revival should begin with somebody else. Why should it not begin with us? Why should we not be the ones who take great care with the Word of God and uh, look as carefully as we can both into the book and into our own lives to see what God is expecting of us at this time. So let me give you a series of questions spread out 
over our time together tonight. Seven questions relating to these two lines of verse 7. And here's the first question I want to draw to your attention. When must this be done? Now we're talking about the first two lines of verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. When must this be done? Well, obviously, at the same time, we are seeking the Lord. It's not that we seek him for 35 years, and then we begin to turn from our wicked ways. You can't seek the Lord for more than a moment or two before he brings to your attention something that stands as an obstacle, some hindrance in your life, something that truly does need to change. So we can say in answer to the question, when must this be done? It must be done while he can be found. It must be done while he is near. Because turning from our wicked ways and our unrighteous thoughts is part and parcel of seeking him. So we must be turning now and tomorrow and all the tomorrows of our lives. So many people seem to regard this subject of repentance as something once done and forever accomplished. But that's absolutely foolish. It is necessary to be repentant throughout all of our days. In some countries of the world, they call Christians repenters. And that's a perfectly lovely thing. And may I ask, would you qualify for that name? Are you a constant repenter? Every time the Lord pinpoints something in your life, he does not like you turn from it. So when must this turning, this forsaking of wickedness and unrighteousness take place now and throughout the entirety of our lives. Now perhaps on a Monday night, this next question is not quite as urgent as on other nights of the week, but nonetheless it is still urgent. Who must do it? Who must forsake his wicked ways? Who must turn from his unrighteous thoughts? And of course, the the biblical account has a very clear message in this regard. And some of us, because we 
are acquainted with what the Bible says are in danger of supposing we don't have to act or do anything. In this wonderful book of Isaiah, and in that glorious 53rd chapter, at verse 6, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now may I ask, are you a sheep? Have you ever considered what sheep are like? Sheep are notoriously ignorant, amazingly stupid, astonishingly wayward, and almost always perverse. If you have ever taken any comfort in Psalm 23, you have done so by assuming that when it says the Lord is my shepherd, that you're qualified to come under the blessedness of the Lord as shepherd. But have you taken it to heart that you've not only come under the blessedness of his being shepherd, but you've come under the curse of being a sheep? It's no honor to describe yourself as a sheep. If you describe yourself as a lion, you might find some benefit. But let's think seriously now about this. Sheep are notoriously stupid. Do you fall under that category? Oh, I know lots of people who would say automatically no. And immediately in saying no to that, they prove how stupid they are. Do you sense the ease with which you turn aside and wander? We have that old hymn we used to sing often, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I wonder how many of you ever thought seriously about this question. What is sin? What is sin? If you were in a situation where you had to define precisely what sin is, how would you respond? Did you ever ask the question, what is at the very heart of sin? What is the very essence of sin? If you've done any serious thinking, Along this line, 
you're aware that sin in its essence is self. And that's exactly what Isaiah 53 is speaking of. We have turned every one to his own way. Now, I hardly need to remind you of this passage in Romans 3, but yet, despite the fact that you may think you don't need it, I'm going to read it anyway. Romans 3, starting at verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, there's not a single person here who is missed in that statement about sin. So who must forsake their wickedness? Who must turn from their unrighteous thoughts? Well, every one of us. But suppose you think, I've already done that. Well, you may have done something that covered something in the past. But as I said already, repentance is not a matter of the past. But it's a day-in, day-out thing. And when we come to a time like this, and when we see the condition of our churches and our nation going lower and lower and lower, when we see immorality pervading, when we see utter ridiculousness and stupidity characterizing a large portion of our political leadership, it makes no sense to blame somebody else for what's gone wrong. We're going to have to take the blame to home where it belongs. And we're going to have to say that among those eminently qualified to do precisely what Isaiah the prophet says must be done, there is none more needing turning from wicked ways and forsaking unrighteous thoughts than those of us who have gathered here tonight. And I wonder how many of you are familiar with this description in the book of Psalms, chapter 14, the first portion of the psalm. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And even old men like me, who have been preaching for much longer than almost anyone here has even been alive. These things apply to me as much as to you. When I was young, I somehow entertained the silly notion that if I lived to get old, everything would be different. It would be easy. I would be just good automatically because of my age. Well, now, maybe somebody thinks that could still happen. But I can tell you honestly, at 84, it hasn't happened yet. And my mother died at 102, and I can assure you it didn't happen in her case. So if you think you're bound to get better eventually and be free of this need of turning from wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts, I think it's a pipe dream, and you might as well settle it tonight. It's never going to happen automatically. All our lives, we must indeed be turning away from these things that glorify self and that dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's two questions. When must it be done? And secondly, who must do it? But here's a third question, and I think this comes very, very close to home. What are the wicked ways and the unrighteous thoughts that we must turn from. Now, you'll pardon me as an old-timer if I resort to notes just to be sure I keep on track. I wonder if any of you ever heard of R.C. Trench and his book, Synonyms of the New Testament. But now listen carefully. He was a bishop in the Anglican Church. You might be dumb enough to find that distressful. I don't. I think that uh, God saves men and women of every denomination. And we need not entertain any prejudice and nonsense that we're better than they. But he gives eight words that are used in the New Testament to describe this wickedness, these unrighteous thoughts that must be forsaken. So follow me carefully as I give you these one by one. The first one 
on his list. The wicked ways, the unrighteous thoughts that must be forsaken are the missing of a mark or a bad aim, if you like. Now, just think of that. The missing of a mark. Most all of you are acquainted with the targets that are used in target practice. Will you think now of a fellow with a very strong arm and a large bow who is shooting arrows at the target? And a sin is the missing of that bullseye. And so he pulls back the bow and lets fly the first arrow and it drops on the ground in front of the target. That's what sin is, missing the mark, falling short of the target that God has set for each of us. I doubt that anyone would have the stupid gall to stand and say, I never missed the target. And it would be no surprise if all of us in a thunderous acclaim said, this very week already I have missed the target. And if we do not seek the face of the Lord now and perpetually hereafter, we are missing the target perpetually and hereafter. So sin is missing the mark, sometimes by falling short, sometimes by going on either side of the mark, sometimes by shooting over the top of the mark. But have you faced the fact of the frequency with which you miss God's target for your life. And is it crystal clear to you that these words of Isaiah the prophet are not addressed to those elsewhere. These are words addressed directly to us. The missing of the mark. Another term that the Bible uses is transgression or going beyond the line that God has drawn. For every one of us, God has a line and he does not want us to go beyond that line. Some of you can remember those days in Exodus when God appeared on the top of Mount Sinai and he warned the people, do not set foot beyond this line. Man or beast who goes beyond that line shall be destroyed. Now, it's the mercy of God that has permitted us yet to remain alive and to seek his face and turn from our wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts. But that doesn't mean the line doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that God has wiped the line out. The line is still there for everyone here. And every time... We overpass that line. 
we have sinned. The third term on Bishop Trench's list is disobedience to a voice. God speaks, whether so we can hear him audibly or whether as recorded in his written word. Every time we disregard the voice of God, it is sin. And we can certainly pinpoint the Ten Commandments as the voice of God. Now let's think about yesterday. The Lord's Day. Was it the Lord's Day? Or your day in which you gave a little time to the Lord. I never yet read in Scripture anything about the Lord's hour, but about the Lord's day. And what about that gift of sex? And what about truth-telling? We won't go through the commandments, but without doing so, surely you're aware that you have not listened all the time with great care to the voice of God. And some Christians seem to get the notion that once they have acknowledged that Christ is Lord, from then on, none of God's standards apply to them. That they then have freedom in Christ to live any way they please. And that's a major characteristic of today's church, that uh, God is no longer the God of the Old Testament who is exacting, but the gracious, loving God of the New Testament who lets you get away with murder and he doesn't mind. But that's sheer nonsense. You don't have any right to create God. He created you. There is a danger for each of us of supposing that God exists for our benefit, whereas in truth, we exist for his benefit. And he has the right to draw the line. He has the right to voice his desire. And every time we overpass that line, and every time we are disobedient to his voice, we have sinned. And then, number four on this list. When God intends for us to stand upright, and we fall down, It's sin. Now that's what's happening in our society. The nation becomes deeper and deeper into gross sin, and the Christian church just goes along. Men and women who should have stood solidly for righteousness cave in and give way and let the nation rush pell-mell toward destruction. And we ought to ask ourselves, am I standing firm where God placed me? 
I'm not asking the people like you. What has that got to do with it? I'm not asking, is your voice heard when you speak out? But I am asking, are you standing firm? And if you're not, if you're bowing down because of the pressure around you, that too is sin. Then number five, whenever we diminish that which should be rendered in full, it is sin. Now just think of that. Let me repeat that word. Whenever we diminish that which should be given in full, it's sin. Now God says, love me with all your heart soul, strength, and mind. And we think, well, that's really too much for me. That's more than I can do. But surely the Lord will be satisfied if I love him some. Or to get into the delicate area where I could quickly create offense if the Lord calls for a tithe and you say, well, I don't think I want to give a tithe, but I could give a dollar. Whenever we render anything in part that God has required us to render in full, it is sin. Number whatever. I'm not very good number. Maybe you're keeping better track than I should have. But uh, here's another One, I guess it's number six, ignorance of what we should have known. You know, if you're arrested by a police officer for going too fast in a speed zone, and you say, oh, sir, I didn't have any idea there was a speed limit here. He doesn't automatically say, well, in that case, you're pardoned. Because we all know that we're supposed to know what we're supposed to do and not do. And surely, if a police officer can command that, God has much greater power and right than he. So, a sin is whenever you are ignorant of what God expects of you. And in your ignorance, you plunge your head in folly. And also, number seven, sin is described in Scripture as the non-observance of law or iniquity or lawlessness. And I've already spoken to the issue that many are convinced that when Christ saves us, we are free from the law and that we can then live a lawless life. But that's about as perverse a line of reasoning and as wicked as you can get. Well, it's not my intent to keep on forever with this number eight. Now, this one might get to some of you. Number eight, sin is whenever we create disunity in the harmony of God's nature. 
Now that requires some consideration. And some of you ladies might not like it one bit. But God created an order in the society. And in that order, God, man, woman, child. And we've got a lot of women around us who are squawking and bellowing their dislike for God's order in society. In all of creation, God has created order. And whenever we violate God's order of things, that too is sin. Well, that's a sufficient list, I believe, to indicate that this is no small matter. And so when in Isaiah we read, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, we're dealing with a matter of incredibly large and enormous impact. Listen to these familiar words from Isaiah 53. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And you wonder, what caused the anguish of God's soul? Well, listen to what precedes. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. To crush who? Let me read those lines again. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Whom did the Lord crush? Whom did the Lord put to grief? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Maybe you need that in front of you to get really get a hold of it. But listen now. If you think your violations of God are of no consequence, then ask the question, why was the Father pleased to crush Christ on your behalf? Why was he willing to put Christ to grief? Would you put a child of your own to grief? Would you crush a child of your own for no significant reason? The fact that Christ had to suffer for us is more than ample evidence of the awfulness of sin and of the necessity of our turning from our wicked ways and from our unrighteous 
thoughts. And I ask you, have you responded every time the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something in your life that he finds offensive? And having already spoken of the essence of sin, self, have you reached that point where you have learned not only to hate sin, but to hate the selfishness within you that keeps you perpetually turning aside from the Lord and pursuing your own way and righteousness. But now let's ask yet another question. Why is sin so great a problem? And I want to ask you to consider now these words from Psalm 51, verse 4. Do you remember these words? King David speaking. King David, after he had committed adultery, after he had arranged the murder of the woman's husband. And God has confronted him and brought him down and has him on his face calling out in repentance to God. And in Isaiah, or excuse me, in Psalm 51 at verse 4, David says, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And I want to ask you, do you have any understanding why David spoke those words? Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. David had committed adultery. David had arranged a murder. Should he not have said, Against Bathsheba, I sinned. Against Uriah, her husband, I sinned. Against my own family, I sinned. Against the nation of Israel, over whom God appointed me king, I sinned. But instead, in speaking to God, he said, Against thee, thee only, Have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight? Now listen, the words of Isaiah 55 take on fresh significance when you come face to face with the fact that David had come to. The great evil of all sin consists in this fact. It is against God. It is impossible to sin only against yourself or only against another person. All sin is truly against God. And it's when we face that reality It is when we recognize 
that the greatest evil of all our sin in, is in the fact that it's against God. That's when we gain a real burden and conscience to set aside sin to do precisely what the prophet Isaiah is calling upon us to do. For all sin is truly against God's sovereignty. He didn't make us to live in sin. It's against his nature. He himself is holy and sin is contrary to his nature. It's against his very name. It's against his word. It's against his reigning purpose. It's against his son who died in our place. It's against creation itself. It's against God's love for us. And it is against God's aspirations for each of us. There isn't a person here who covers his sin, but what makes it impossible for God to make of you that which he desires. And all of us ought with the greatest of seriousness to face The words of Isaiah in chapter 55, verse 7. Let us forsake our wickedness and let us truly abandon all our unrighteous thoughts. But now let's move to a fifth question. How is this forsaking of wickedness and unrighteous thoughts to be done? Now we know the word repentance, and I've used it often already tonight. But we need to understand that repentance is not merely negative. Repentance is both negative and positive. So, here's a person going in the wrong direction. Is it sufficient to stop? Could stopping doing what you've been doing be correctly called repentance? Or is there another element in repentance beyond ceasing in that sin? Does not repentance require that we cease to do evil and we begin to do good? We turn from in order to turn to So it's not merely an empty, void life where we're trying to rise above sin, but in actual truth, it's when we turn from the evil and we turn to the good, the power of the good crowds the rest of the evil out and leaves no space for it. I talk with many people who are trying desperately to be good and failing miserably. And I don't hardly know anything more frustrating than trying to be good when you were created 
good, but turned evil in the roots of Adam's sin. But to crowd the evil out by doing good is indeed a most excellent and necessary step. But let's pause now again and ask each of us personally, have I turned from all sin? And have I turned to all righteousness? Now, if you're acquainted with that wonderful passion, passage on repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in giving a list of seven of the marks of true repentance, the Apostle Paul begins that list of seven with the word earnestness. Earnestness. And I'd like to put that to you now. Repentance is not casual. It's not careless. It's earnest. Once in a while you listen to somebody in a prayer meeting and they say something like this, and Lord, in the event that I have sinned against you, please forgive me. Have you ever been guilty of that kind of thinking? Vague, uncertain, if it's possible. I don't care enough to inquire with certainty. I haven't set my heart to turn from all wickedness and unrighteousness, but just in case there's something you don't like about me, please forgive me. There's nothing in earnest about that. And because this is intended to be a very serious biblical week of facing the issue of seeking God, would this not be a splendid time to get alone with God before tomorrow night and to say, Lord, is there anything in my life you don't like? I'm tired of the vagueness and the uncertainty. And I know you're completely dissatisfied with it. And so I'm going to ask you tonight that you will search me, O God. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Now, if you stepped up to me afterward and you said, Mr. Roberts, would you please give me an examination so that I can be sure all is well? I would decline your request. And I would decline because I'm totally unqualified. But the Holy Spirit is not unqualified. And if you were to go to him tonight and say, it's not enough to seek your faith. It's important, it's urgent, but also I must turn from my wicked way. And I want to be sure that I have turned from everything that you find offensive.
So show me everything in my life that you don't like. And I promise you that I will turn from it. And show me everything you want me to pursue. And I promise you, I will pursue it. This forsaking of wickedness and unrighteousness is accomplished by earnest, heartfelt repentance and faith. And number six, who will help us? As I already said, don't come to me. I can't help you. If you had some significant question, I could help with that. But this is not an issue of intellectual questions. This is an issue of heart integrity. God says, forsake your wickedness and your unrighteous thoughts. And you're thinking, I want to. I really, truly want to. But I don't know how. And I've tried before. And I haven't done very well. Somebody help me. Yes, there is somebody to help you. The Holy Spirit. And he can help you magnificently. So don't try to do it alone. Call out, help! And the Lord is there. There's hardly any point of going on with the rest of this passage if we balk here and if we refuse to turn. But let me now introduce the seventh and the last of the questions. When true repentance has occurred and faith is being exercised, who must guard the gates? Listen to that question. When you have truly repented and embraced Christ and are pursuing him who must guard the gates you say you've not made mention of any gates this evening so how are we supposed to know what you're talking about well I'm asking you who must guard the gates am I responsible to guard the gates for you? Are you responsible to guard the gates for me? Can the pastors of this church serve as the guards of your gates? Do you understand that Satan has a lot at stake? He wants you for his kingdom. He doesn't want to release you to the kingdom of God. And he doesn't mind if you have a serious moment 
and uh, repent and turn toward Christ as long as you don't keep going in that direction. His concern is to get to you and get you back where you used to be. And it's the gates of our lives that determine whether we go on with Christ or we flip-flop and go back and forth or turn permanently into the world. And I'm terribly sorry to say to you that I have had a lot of knowledge of people who started out well and didn't finish because they didn't guard the gates. And I want to ask each of you to think soberly now about this issue of guarding the gates. What are the gates that I'm making reference to? Well, what are the inroads into our hearts and lives? Surely you know about the eye gates. Surely you know about the ear gates. I should certainly hope that you're perfectly familiar with the gate of taste and the gate of touch, the gate of smell, and the gate of mind. Now think, think! This is an immensely important issue. As I said already, you can start out on repentance, and as long as you don't continue, Satan is pleased. And you can't continue if you don't put a guard at the gates of your life. Are you aware of the fact that our Lord Jesus himself said, Take care what you listen to. You might look that up. Mark chapter 4, verse 24. Take care what you listen to. And consider now that passage in the light of the significance of the ear gate. Suppose you allow yourself to listen to all the clamorous voices and noises of the present world. You're going to be back on the way of wickedness and with the thoughts of the unrighteous very quickly if you don't take care to guard the ear gate. I think it's silly to make up laws and try to impose them on other people. I've heard preachers say, you must smash your television set. Well, I don't think there's any point of talking nonsense. But there is a very great point in talking good sense. And if you allow yourself to listen to that which Satan wants you to hear, you will not be able to walk the straight and the narrow. So guard the ear gate and using Jesus' very words, take heed what you hear. 
That's your responsibility. Nobody can do it for you. If you are careless in your listening, you are bound to have a fall before you. And it's not just to the radio and the television and the movies, etc., etc., etc. But what if you allow yourself to listen to praise? What if you allow yourself to listen to criticism? It's a bit amusing to me, but some while ago I was preaching in a church in the state of Illinois, and after the service a couple came marching out, and they looked at me, and they said to me, you are the most stupid preacher we ever listened to. We can't imagine where you get the gall to even assume that you're called by God to preach. If you had any decency, decency in you at all, you would never trouble a congregation again with your asininity. And out they went. Maybe five minutes later, another couple comes along tears pouring down their faces. And they say to me, we came this morning in desperate need and God met us in the most powerful way imaginable. God is all over your preaching. We have never heard anything so helpful. Don't ever let anybody discourage you. God has called you to preach. Now which of those two should I listen to? Neither one. Why should I pay any attention to what anybody has to say? All I want to do is to please my Lord. But if you allow yourself to listen to the clamor and the noise around you in one way or another, it will have an ill effect and you will find it impossible to perpetually turn from your wickedness and your unrighteous thoughts. But, in addition to saying, take heed what you hear, Christ also said, take heed how you hear. Luke 8, verse 18. Be careful, our Lord said, take heed how you listen. In a church one day, I said, no Roman Catholic goes to heaven because he's a Roman Catholic any more than any Protestant goes to heaven because he's a Protestant. And a short time later, I was told that what I said was, no Roman Catholic goes to heaven. Take care how you listen. Many of us get off on the wrong track because we think we heard something we didn't hear at all. We heard a fraction, but not the whole. We didn't catch the significance and the meaning. Learn to be good listeners and govern what you listen to. Guard the ear gate. That's the point. And I pause and ask you, are you doing that? Are you paying very strict attention to what you hear? And are you certain that what you hear is not bringing you down, but lifting 
you up toward Christ and the glory. So we have the ear gate. We also have the eye gate. And it is tremendously critical that we guard the eye gate. If someone were to say to me, is it wicked to do this? I might very well say, no, not as a blanket wickedness, but ask the question, is this helping me to love Christ, or is this dragging me down? We're to guard the eye gate, not because of somebody else's rules imposed upon us, but because of our love for Christ to serve him and not to be ill-affected by the things that we see. A great amount of the moral ill-conduct so prevalent in the church today is because there are multitudes that don't guard the eye gate. And I'm asking you, are your ears guarded? Are your eyes Guarded. We have hands, wonderful hands. Now use them well now because if you don't, and even if you do, I don't know that you can see this, but look at this hand. This crooked finger here, it's bent. Every time I sit down to type, I hit with great frequency the wrong key because my fingers don't function well anymore. That's not of any importance to you, but it is tremendously important to you to understand the biblical concepts of hands. Job, in that remarkable book that appears in our Bible under his name, says, He who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. Now, the opposite is not stated, but it's every bit as true. He who has soiled hands grows weaker and weaker. And ask, how clean are my hands? And I'm not talking about physical dirt. But to touching things that are not yours to touch. And every earnest Christian especially needs to be warned against touching that which belongs to God. Touch not the glory. Touch not! The glory, the glory belongs to God. Suppose some Sunday, as your dear pastor is preaching, suddenly heaven opens and Christ comes down and the most incredible sense of his nearness and a great revival springs up. Ought the pastor to take the glory? Ought you to be dumb enough to give to him that which doesn't belong to him? Our hands can be instruments of great good or great 
evil. In the psalm, the question is asked, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Your task is to guard what you touch and not allow yourself to touch anything that God did not intend you to touch. I'll only say it in passing, but the taste is involved. And some folk of my acquaintance, once they taste something, can't stop eating it, and then they bulge. Is it to the glory of God to be grossly overweight? Govern your taste. Govern your smell. But then, as I close, this incredible thing, the mind gate, the mind gate, that's where the great danger is forever lurking. Have you put a guard around your mind? Romans 8 speaks in terms of the mindset of the flesh and the mindset of the spirit. Every believer must have the mindset of the spirit. We must not allow ourselves to think of things as the world thinks of them, but as the spirit of God thinks of them. And many of you know that wonderful passage in First Peter, the mindset of the world or of the flesh. The mindset of the spirit brings into focus the great things of God. But the mindset of the world brings us into dismal distance from the Lord. So, dear friends, here we have an incredibly important text preceded by the warning, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And now tonight, the significant urging. Forsake wickedness. Forsake unrighteous thoughts. And suppose, just suppose, that in the providence of God, this gathering of people here tonight Just suppose each one of us takes this as God's word and sets our heart this week and forever after to seek the Lord and to turn aside from all wickedness and all unrighteous thoughts. Do you understand that the Lord is waiting and watching for a people upon whom he can pour his Holy Spirit?
He's not going to send a great blessing to those who will use it for their own glory. The blessing of God is reserved for those who can use it to his glory. And before we leave tonight, would it not be wise, no matter how often in the past you've thought along these lines, would it not be wise tonight to make a true covenant with the Lord to do exactly what he asked you to do?